Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of The Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir, and today I'll be speaking to Matt Sheehan. Matt is a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he researches global technology with a focus on China. His writing and research explores China's AI ecosystem, the future of China's technology policy, and technology's role in China's political economy. Matt has also written for Foreign Affairs and the Huffington Post, among other venues. As somebody interested in the geopolitics of AI, I find Matt to be one of the most thoughtful people out there writing about these things today. I find his analysis on China and his understanding of the country and its situation unique and really insightful. As he mentions in the conversation, I think he does a fantastic job of bringing together top-down analysis, the understanding of government and party structures at a national level, but also more of a bottom-up perspective that focuses on the daily lives of people, whether they be ordinary citizens or AI researchers. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed speaking with him. As always, if you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. And now, without further ado, Matt Sheehan. To begin with, you said in a pretty recent piece that competing with China technology remains one of the great challenges facing America today, and that your research is devoted to figuring out how to do that effectively. I want to spend some time understanding how you got there kind of from your first experience in Beijing in 2008 and maybe going forward to today? Sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's been kind of like a winding path to get to that point where this is one of my main focuses. Growing up, I didn't really have any particular interest in China, um, didn't learn any Chinese growing up. And then in the summer of 2008, so when I was halfway through college, like between sophomore and junior year, I pretty much by chance got a summer job in Beijing as an academic camp counselor in the center of the city. Landed there knowing, you know, absolutely nothing about China, basically. Uh, Back then, I think all we, you know, in terms of high school history classes covering China, I think we hit like 14 dynasties in two weeks and, you know, called it a day. So I arrived there thinking, you know, China, we got Mao Zedong, there's Tiananmen Square, and there's now they're developing really fast. And so a bit of a blank slate. And I was just immediately fascinated when I landed in Beijing. I just found the life on the street, the everything Everything was just so radically different from where I had grown up in Palo Alto, Uh, you know, just the density, the intensity. And uh, yeah, I just immediately became super curious. And so I spent that summer in Beijing, uh, the summer before the Olympics. I was kind of a special time in Beijing, really, you know, gearing up and getting ready for China to sort of step out onto the world stage in its own way. And I, I, I traveled around a little bit that summer, but immediately told myself I would, I would move back after graduation and I would live there and try to learn Chinese and, and whatnot. So went back to school, learned a little bit of Chinese. And uh, after I graduated in 2010, moved to Xi'an in central China. So that's the you know, ancient city with terracotta warriors and whatnot. And I spent a year there um, teaching, studying, spending a lot of time on the language, moved to Beijing and spent another four years there, kind of wandering into the tech stuff. Early on, I knew I wanted to be a reporter. Um, I felt like there was a really big gap in the way that American media was covering China um, in terms of just not necessarily relaying what it was sort of like to be a normal Chinese person or what China looked like from the ground up. I think at the time there was a little bit of a, maybe an overemphasis on sort of high level politics or, you know, uh, dissidents and stuff like that. And I felt like there were a lot of really interesting stories at the ground level. And so that's what I sort of tried to cover. I became a reporter for the Huffington Post eventually. And this is kind of how I wandered into the US-China tech space is 
when I became a reporter, China wasn't eager to give out a lot of journalist visas at the time. And so I was basically stuck back in California for about seven months where I was officially the Huffington Post correspondent in China, but could not go back into China. And so I just started looking for China stories around where I was. And this is, you know, Palo Alto circa 2013. So we're just seeing these huge new waves of Chinese students arriving at California universities, Chinese home buyers. Uh, Chinese film industry intersecting with Hollywood. And then probably the richest and the most vibrant was the Chinese interactions with Silicon Valley. You know, Chinese companies starting to come over here, show up in the Valley, Chinese VCs, a lot of Chinese people returning, you know, having come to the US for education, maybe work a few years at Google and go back to China. And that was kind of my my entry into China's, um, to China's tech ecosystem was talking with these people very much at the ground level about you know, what's going on in China's innovation ecosystem, what's going on in Silicon Valley. I think we, at the time, we thought of these two ecosystems as very separate because U.S. companies couldn't operate in China for the most part. But I was seeing all these uh, very sort of grassroots levels, connections in terms of people, money, and ideas moving back and forth. And uh, yeah, I just kind of kept following those threads, followed those threads into writing a book. And then as the book was being written, the text section kept growing bigger and bigger and then sort of moved into the artificial intelligence side of it specifically for the last five years or so. Yeah, I'd love to get into more detail about the Trans-Pacific experiment, but it is really interesting just the way in which your journalism career, you focused on kind of this bottom-up approach to understanding the daily life aspects of China. And I guess I'm curious about how learning about and sharing these stories changed your own perspective on the country. Yeah, I think it when when you look at it from a somewhat of a bottom-up perspective, you end up kind of putting yourself in the shoes or trying to adopt, you know, understand the mentality of all the people who are operating within the system. So, uh, you know, if you try to understand like uh, U.S.-China competition through this lens, it didn't start with the like big country, big country, you know, rising power, established power. How are they going to, you know, clash or compete? It was like, okay, you know, here's this guy. He grew up in central China in like the 80s. He came here for his education, got a PhD in, in machine learning, went to work at Google. And then what was it in his own sort of view on things that led him to return to China to found his own startup there? What are the push and pull that operate on individual people who are in many ways, you know, the, the ultimate sort of driving force behind these things? And so that's kind of the angle that I tended to come at a lot of these higher level issues from. and. It's not to say that like the bottom up view is correct or the the top down view doesn't have anything to offer. I think in a lot of ways, both of over the last five years, both the countries have the top leaders have effectively reasserted control over a lot of swaths of the economy and a lot of swaths of the tech ecosystem that for a while were the US was very hands off with Silicon Valley. China was always more hands on with its tech ecosystem, but still, you know, the ultimate decisions of where are the best researchers living and working, uh, you know, where are they founding companies? Who do they partner with? What products do they imitate? Those were still very much, and, and I think to a certain extent, they are still very much driven by individual people, individual choices. What are you exposed to? What do you see yourself in dialogue with? Yeah, what are the push and pull? And so that's what I try to bring to the conversation sometimes. And I try to put that sort of in dialogue with these more top-down, high-level nation-state concerns, which is where a lot of the, the current discussion is. Yeah, yeah. And I can certainly appreciate that need for including that bottom-up perspective, because certainly there's a way in which it's easy to look at these conversations about geopolitics and just view it as like China, this giant, anonymous, monolithic entity is doing this, or really just giving a specific person, right, like Xi Jinping, as emblematic of everything that is going on in China. And yes, certainly as the leader of the party, he has an incredible amount of influence and is going to be driving the direction of things. But as you said, there are many individuals, some people might be aware of Kai-Fu Lee, for example, who are very important in these ecosystems and in the discourse surrounding AI and geopolitics, who also exert their own influence. Yeah, you know, and this is this is very much an evolution over time. Like I think in that period of say 2008 or 9 until 2000 and I would say 16 17, 
most of these trends, they were operating within some high-level constraints, but they were still very much sort of built on the work of, of somewhat autonomous individuals. So like the high-level constraints in China in terms of the growth of its tech ecosystem were, hey, you know, number one, we're blocking all these big American information or social media platforms. Two, we're not going to allow free speech online to run rampant. After 2013 is when they really started cracking down on stuff like Weibo, their sort of Twitter-esque platform. And so those are like the high-level constraints. Big American companies can't get in, and Chinese companies operate within certain political constraints. But within that, there was still so much room to maneuver, room to play, and room for these influences to go back and forth. And basically, I think starting around 2016, we've seen like the steady sort of re-encroachment of the two capitals of the two, the national government and the federal government on a lot of these flows. So now it's a matter of figuring out what the new balance is or figuring out where is there room for autonomy among Chinese actors and where is there room for autonomy among American actors. I find that Despite everything that is going on, which has cast a very, very heavy shadow on a lot of these connections, you know, the the people who are the most advanced AI ML researchers in China, a lot of them still had an American education. They still see themselves as kind of in dialogue with the global AI ML conversation. They want to contribute to that. They're learning from that. And so it's kind of finding these little areas where there's where there's room to operate or where there's room to add something that I find pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's a really important space. And I guess maybe moving forward from these broader frameworks a little bit of analysis, I'd love to get your perspective just on for perhaps people in the AI space, for instance. I think there's certainly different levels of interest in what is going on geopolitically. I think the fact that we've seen Somewhat of, I guess you could think of it as a little bit of an arms race in terms of foundation models right after the US released GPT-3. China came out with its own. We saw these coming out of Korea, Israel, many different places. And with China in particular, though, there's been a decent amount of writing. You've also written about China's ambitions in the tech space more broadly and then in AI in particular. What would you say are a few important trends, things that people in the AI space should understand about China's ambitions in AI and the broader tech space? Sure. Yeah, I think when I think about what China wants, if we could say China wants something, you know, you could put that in terms of the fed, the, the national government in China in terms of Xi Jinping. I generally tend to put it in three different buckets. The first one being self-reliance, its ability to sort of survive on its own, even as it's cut off from access to more parts of the global tech ecosystem, most importantly, semiconductors. So self-reliance is the first bucket. Fundamental breakthroughs is the second bucket. This is something that they are frequently talking about. They want to get to the global cutting edge. They want to make sort of breakthroughs in isolated areas, and they want to establish sort of leadership uh, more broadly over time. And the third one would be economic upgrading. In my opinion, the the Communist Party of China always sees technology as sort of a means to an end. And their sort of dominant paradigm of technology has been, this this is a tool that we can use to achieve our political, social, and economic goals. And so they don't, even 10 years ago when the government was more hands off with technology, they didn't necessarily glorify startups in quite the same way. They saw technology as a way to upgrade their industrial base. They know that they're facing long-term demographic problems. They're facing sort of long-term problems in terms of how do you just govern a country of 1.4 billion people. And so they see technology as a means for upgrading the the economic base and in some ways helping China sort of enter a new phase of development outside, you know, past the phase of just cheap manufacturing hub resisting the inputs of demographic decline and taking them into sort of a new stage of economic development. So self-reliance, fundamental breakthroughs, and economic upgrading. So the three buckets that I see it in. And those kind of take different levels of precedence at different periods of time, or they each satisfy different needs. I think fundamental breakthroughs is something that they tend to like gesture at frequently, talk about on some level, but fundamentally you don't need to be making fundamental breakthroughs to have a thriving economy or to have like a secure 
government, a secure domestic, social, and political establishment. So I always think of that as, in some ways, the most dispensable of the three goals. They might talk about it a lot. I think economic upgrading is a big picture one. It's a long-term one. It's sort of where they're pushing in general. But the one that has really become kind of an existential threat to China is the self-reliance one. They have seen that if they are truly cut off from access to uh, advanced or cutting-edge semiconductors, so much of their tech sector might just sort of fall apart or might at least get set back a number of years. And so it's become, in some ways, the greatest focus of these three, but it's also in some ways the hardest to fix. They're building up a cutting-edge semiconductor industry, semiconductor manufacturing equipment. It's not an overnight thing. It's not something that you can just throw money at. So that's the one that I think, even before the latest chip constraints, we're speaking in, in late October, these came out in earlier October. Even before these, this was quite felt as quite existential, I think, beginning around 2018 or so with, with the restrictions on Huawei, 2018-19. Yeah, the semiconductor conversation is really fascinating. Before we, we dig into that a little bit, I did just want to linger a bit on the point about economic upgrading, because one thing that I've always tried to think about and understand in terms of the ambition motivation side of this is you connected just now the ambitions for applying AI technology, for developing new things to some of the issues that China faces as a nation. And one thing that I always think about is there does seem to be a fair amount of discourse regarding how much China views these economic objectives, these political objectives as like explicitly competitive versus we're just trying to improve things for our own people. And there's a way to locate some of this in recent events in China's history, right? If we look at the unequal treaties, if we look at the whole century of humiliation, these things still seem to linger in the national consciousness. And so I'd love to get your take on how things like that influence the way that China, both at a top level and then people within the country are kind of approaching these conversations. Great. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I, I love looking at this bigger picture history and how it shapes the internal narratives. I'll give a, a quick overview of center of humiliation stuff in case your listeners might not be familiar. But in, in, it basically, in many ways, the China has a very clear macro narrative of Chinese history. We were once a great and dominant civilization. We were the leading civilization in the world, leading technological power. And then we went into this period of decline and weakness. We started interacting with more of the Western foreign powers in the 1840s. Opium war, they basically sort of, we had fallen behind technologically and they were able to use their technological advancement to force a bunch of what they call the unequal treaties on China. They were basically, you know, in some ways forcing China to allow them to sell drugs into China, which was a big social problem. And then that period from basically 1850 to 1950 is often called the century of humiliation where they had to, they, they were in a very weak position relative to foreign powers. You could make whatever demands they want on them. The empire and the last Chinese emperor fell in 1911, and it all culminated in Mao Zedong uh, and the communist rehaking the country in 1949. So very quick overview, just in case folks aren't familiar. But there they have this former great civilization was down and out for a century of humiliation, and they've been on the road to rejuvenation ever since 1949. And this shapes the the narratives in a couple ways. One, it tees up the present day China as returning to its former glory. And Xi Jinping has has really explicitly made this a, a national narrative. The great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation is you know one of the taglines he used early on. So you have that, but you also have this sense of foreign powers trying to encircle us, trying to hold us down, trying to extract concessions from us. And the only solution to that is to become as powerful as them. And with technology in some ways being a central point of focus there. In the old days, it was military technology. Maybe it's a little bit broader now. I think you know that some form of that narrative is in the background of like all Chinese education. And I think it's it's very real. I think the thing that changed a lot from when I first went in 2008 to the present day is that switch from, hey, when in 2008, I remember I, I had heard growing up in America, I was like, oh, China's the next, the next big thing, the next rising power or whatever. And whenever back in 2008, all the way through 2010, when I would say that to my Chinese friends, they'd be like, 
I mean, nah, we just need to like get by. We're still poor. Like we just need to kind of keep moving along. You look in many ways, they would kind of look around trying to be like, this is this country's still pretty busted. Like we are just trying to like get on competitive footing where we can survive in the global marketplace. We can make our lives better. We can earn more and our parents can like live more comfortably. And I think that was a real feeling throughout the Hu Jintao era of, you know, 2002 to 2012. It was still this feeling that, that China is very far behind and it's more just a matter of kind of taking care of our own business. And what she has really done in the last 10 years is accelerate the pace at which China sees itself as, you know what, no, like our time has arrived. We are now like directly sort of gunning for global leadership. We want to be number one in technology. We want to be the biggest economy in the world. It doesn't trickle down to every single person, most of whom, like most Americans, are just concerned with paying their bills and getting by. But I'd say the dominant sort of political narrative has changed and that they've just really accelerated the pace at which China is positioned as being sort of on par with and ready to challenge the United States and other countries. It's not just something that changed in China, you know, a lot of external factories, the Iraq war and sort of a, a decade of like US bungling foreign policy, especially in the Middle East, the financial crisis really reducing faith in the US as this paragon of policymaking, paragon of economic power, and then all the way up to through the Trump administration and seeing the U.S. as very much a, this is China, you know, especially Chinese media talking, seeing the U.S. as a, a declining power that's sort of in disarray. And maybe now it's China's time. So I think that all that all goes into a big picture in the same way that, you know, just on the granular tech level, it's like 2000, 2010, it was like, if you wanted to operate at the global cutting edge, you got to go to America. You got to go there. You got to work in American companies. That's where innovation exists. And then starting around something that 2014, 2014, 15 era, the feeling of like, no, actually, maybe the center of action is back in China. This is where we need to be. And this is where we need to be working. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting levels and sets of perspectives that go into what you just said, I think. There's not just the bottom up, lots of people are just thinking about their jobs, trying to pay their bills versus the party line, as it were, or higher level national objectives. But then you've also got the perceptions that the different countries are going to have of one another, right? So for example, the US viewing a little bit of like a zero sum game between it and China in terms of global dominance or prowess in the AI space. And then you might wonder how the perceptions and then the ways in which different nations, different people within those nations end up acting on those perceptions creates self-fulfilling prophecies or just influences the ways in which these, these interactions start to occur. The adversarial nature of things might just turn from like, this is our perception and into a reality. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of forces kind of coming together at the same time. Xi Jinping is a very, very unique figure in Chinese politics after a decade or more where it was very much like, hey, you know, we need sort of collective leadership and we need to stay low key. We don't need to challenge the U.S. outright. Xi Jinping is just a very brash and to a certain extent. I don't know if aggressive is exactly the right word, but I mean, he came in domestically. He immediately went in and smashed all rivals and, you know, asserted himself. And he brings some of that like brashness onto the global stage. And so he's doing that in China simultaneously in the US. We're making this transition from the Obama era into the Trump era, where he's radically changing the way that we think and talk about international relations in the US, exerting a huge sort of pull on that. And then Beneath these two sort of national level leaders, you have this like tectonic shift in just like global economic and political power that's been underway for a long time, but it's finally sort of hitting a almost like a boiling point in the 2010s. And underneath all of that, you have AI and ML emerging into like a really major force in the economy and a big place in our sort of public imagination about the future, about future of warfare, the future of the economy and stuff like that. So it's a very... Yeah, you know, there's a lot of strands going into it. And it's kind of it's really, it's really changed the way that we even talk about technology in a geopolitical sense. Sure, sure. And perhaps to get to the first bucket you'd mentioned earlier in terms of self-reliance, and in particular, the semiconductor aspect of it being pretty existential for China, 
It seems like there's been a lot of fascinating discourse around this recently. When I was preparing for a conversation, I read through this piece called Choking Off China's Access to the Future of AI. I think you might have shared that as well. That really just hit home for me how serious the policy was in terms of establishing a chokehold. And funnily enough, this morning, Ben Thompson posted his weekly stratechery update specifically on this topic as well, um, China and chips. And I thought he had a pretty interesting take whether the chip ban was the right move, what China is going to now have to do. And in some ways, how it feels like what might be going on is an acceleration of trends that were already beginning. You kind of mentioned that China was already beginning to start establishing its own development in these areas like semiconductors and in the AI chip space, for example, we've seen startups like Kunlun spinning off Baidu. But I'd love to get your take on what the strategic importance of all this has been recently in terms of cutting off supply to China and semiconductors, and then what you see as like whether this was the right move, how things might play out from here. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this was a really huge move, and it was a huge, like you said, it's it's a huge acceleration in trends that have been in place for a while. So on the one hand, you know, looking way far back, China has had it as a major national goal to be able to design and fabricate its own semiconductors. This is going back literally twenty plus years. And they've had kind of like wave after wave of saying, okay, we're going to do this. And they throw a bunch of money at it and they make some progress, but they eventually kind of realize, hey, you know what, in some ways we're like so far behind or we're just not competitive. And the fact that they can still just buy these chips from US or Taiwanese or uh, Korean producers, they kind of end up abandoning it to some extent. So you have like a wave of investment and energy in Chinese semiconductor space, I think in the early 2000s. And then the most recent wave was in 2014 with what was called the the big fund, which was another attempt to say, hey, these are really important. We're going to invest massive amounts of money into this industry. We're going to deploy it through this sort of big state-sponsored I guess you wouldn't call it a VC fund, maybe something more like a private equity fund into all different aspects of the chip industry. And that went, that started in 2014. And it was part of this, what was called the Made in China 2025 plan, which came out in 2015 saying, hey, we're really going to prioritize this industry. But again, it was, you know, making some progress, but still very, very far behind the cutting edge and behind true like self-sufficiency in semiconductors. And this all started to become much more, I, I think, in, you know, so the Chinese government has a stated goal of catching up, but it's during that time, it still doesn't, it's not really an existential threat. They can always just buy these uh, better products from somewhere else. That all starts to shift in 2017, 18, 19. So we almost kind of discover this in the U.S. government somewhat by accident when we um, put a company called ZTE, which is a Chinese telecoms company under very strict export controls because of, I believe it was doing business with Iran or some other country that, that we have restrictions on. So they were violating our export controls on a third country, either Iran or North Korea. We banned U.S. companies from doing business with them. And suddenly it became clear that if you banned U.S. companies from doing business with a major Chinese telecom, this was an absolutely existential threat. ZTE would have completely gone under if these restrictions had held. So it first went on in 2017. The, the restrictions were reinforced in 2018. And basically, ZTE had a short period of time where it would have died, except that President Trump struck a deal as part of the trade war that was just emerging to allow ZTE sort of back into U.S. supply chains. But this signaled to the U.S. government, hey, like, these companies are extremely vulnerable. They need our chips. They need access to to our supply chains in order to basically survive. So we later deployed this specifically targeting Huawei. And it was over between 2018 and 2020, up till now, 2022, we've had this kind of iterative policy process where we steadily ramp up the restrictions. First, they're just on Huawei. First, they're just about American chips. And we're like, oh, actually, it's very easy for Huawei to get around these by just buying chips from third countries. And so we had to find a way to expand our controls to prevent other countries from selling to to Huawei. This is called the foreign direct product rule. That was pretty successful. And then we decided, okay, why don't we throw some other Chinese companies on this list? So we threw some military companies on, uh, military-related companies on, some surveillance-related companies on these lists. The entity list is the primary one. The U.S. was kind of in a state of what felt like a 
an equilibrium where we said, hey, for most of China, let's continue selling them the chips. Let's put very targeted export controls on specific companies that we think are bad actors. But by and large, let's keep selling chips to China and let's try to restrict their access to semiconductor manufacturing equipment, which is one of the major choke points here. So uh, advanced EUV photolithography, a key part of semiconductor manufacturing, only one company in the world makes the best machine. So if we can get the Dutch government to stop giving licenses, they can cut China's ability to do that. So we, yeah, we basically had this equilibrium of like, let's sell China the chips, but let's try to prevent it from getting the advanced semiconductor manufacturing equipment that will allow it to become self-sufficient in semiconductors. And that held for a while until these October regulations where we dramatically expanded the scope. We said, we're not going to target individual companies. We're going to pre- we're going to cut off the entire country from logic chips that are at the 16 or 18 nanometer level. And we're going to impose a bunch of new restrictions on semiconductor manufacturing equipment. We're going to impose new restrictions on the components that go into semiconductor manufacturing equipment. And we're going to impose controls on preventing American citizens or residents from engaging with China. Chinese companies. So this is, in a lot of ways, we're, we're playing not all of our cards, but we're playing a very large number of our cards once. For a while, there was a debate in the policy community that I was engaged in, which said, hey, maybe it's best to kind of just keep selling China these chips to keep sort of undermining their own ability to develop their own industry. You sell them the chips, they're not going to really develop a self-sustaining ecosystem. And others said, you know what? No, like we just need to like we need to do as much damage to Chinese tech ecosystem as we can. And the way to do that is to have the broadest bans on chips. And basically, this set of regulations tries to do both those things. Is we're going to cut off all the chips, but we're also going to cut off two layers deep of semiconductor manufacturing equipment and the components that go into it to just truly set China back on the scale of maybe five years in terms of what they can produce today, and then more than 10 years in terms of their, their long-term catch-up. I think it's a big gamble. I think there was there was a certain amount of wisdom to an approach that said, if we keep selling most Chinese companies the chips, they're never really going to have the motivation to build up this self-sustaining ecosystem because Chinese companies won't buy from Chinese fabs. Chinese fabs won't buy from Chinese semiconductor manufacturing equipment providers, and they'll never be able to create sort of a, a positive feedback loop. Essentially, the the U.S. government is betting we can do so much damage right now. We can cut them off from so many crucial supplies that it won't matter if they are now all working together. It won't matter if they have this positive feedback loop because they're just going to be so cut off from everything that they need. (laughs) Do I think this is a good idea? I think it's a gamble. (laughs) I think it's a big gamble. I think maybe previously I'd been more in the camp of it's better to try to maintain this dependence and maintain this reliance. And we're confident enough that they can't build the advanced semiconductor manufacturing equipment that they won't catch up. I think maybe just the last five years of watching US-China, watching the development of the technology and watching the development of US-China relations has made me think, you know, we, it's pretty hard to bet on anything that's 10 years out. Yes, maybe we have this great choke point in advanced photolithography, EUV photolithography, but what if the industry just kind of takes a right turn and it goes and there's some different way of packaging the chips that becomes sort of dominant? Or what if compute just fundamentally goes in a different direction as Moore's law gets kind of harder and harder to maintain? Or what if, you know, maybe in 10 years, she's not in power, maybe Donald Trump's in power, you know, we, we just don't know. And so I think I've become more sympathetic to the idea of if you have all of this leverage now, maybe maybe you use your leverage while you have it rather than trying to hold on to it for a long time. But there's a big uncertainty going forward, big uncertainty about how long it's going to take China to build up these industries for itself and big uncertainty on where the semiconductor industry going and where the AI sort of field is going. Bit of a cop out answer. No, that's fair. I would agree with you that it seems there are just too many aspects of this that are difficult to project out 10, even between five and 10 years into the future. And there is this aspect in which the US is now trying to strangle to kill, but you back somebody into a corner and they are going to figure something out most likely. And I think that, that Ben Thompson had a really good point in his piece, just at how 
the development of the chip industry up till today. So kind of going forward from Intel to more modularized manufacturing and development. So towards TSMC, that's more or less China's path to the future, the one they're going to have to walk. And having a path to follow that's already played out in the world, as opposed to forging an entirely new one, does make the job a lot easier for them. And I know you said earlier that just having money isn't necessarily going to be the answer to this, but just in terms of this being existential for China, and then quoting from him, he said they have, quote, unlimited money and infinite motivation to figure this out, which does seem like a set of circumstances that could make a fundamental shift happen sooner rather than later. And there's certainly a lot of a lot of different aspects here. Of course, the fact that we are cutting off high-end chips as opposed to trailing edge fabs, right, that make up lots of the industry volume also seems pertinent here. But as you said, I don't know if it's necessarily a cop-out answer because there are just so many different things that are kind of going on at once here that make it a little bit difficult to predict. Yeah, yeah. And I think in many ways, we ultimately care about chips because how they how they like diffuse into the economy, how they diffuse into the technology sphere, you know, explicitly AI ML use cases, and a whole bunch of other things. So I think that's when maybe specifically for kind of an AI focused audience, a, a big question that I have that I haven't really been able to get a straight answer from anyone on is when it you mentioned earlier, like foundation models, when it comes to training these models, I, I think currently they're trained on relatively leading edge chips. And if Basically, if China were forced to try to train these models on older generation chips, on stuff that's at like the 28 nanometer, which is already like three, four generations behind, how much can they make up for lack of cutting edge access with just sheer quantity of trailing edge chips? I think this is, in many ways, this has been the way that China has advanced quicker or in more surprising ways than than we predicted is they tend to just be like, well, if it's a matter of just throwing a ton of resources at something, we can always do that. And we're always willing to do that. Whereas in the US, we're always looking for the most efficient or the most elegant like engineering solution. And I think a big question that I have, other than just, you know, the chips that go into cell phones and the chips that might go into, you know, obviously washing machines or fighter pilots, whatever it is, when it comes to training large models, how much is China able to do with its set of sort of trailing edge chips? If any of your listeners have uh, thoughts on that, I'd love to hear them. I was wondering about that same question as you actually, because I think that part of that motivation towards these chips that have more more DRAM that are more specialized in certain ways is certainly that the training and development of large models has become more this distributed systems engineering problem as opposed to a fundamental AI problem. And we know at this point that at least to a certain extent, this problem is solvable. We've seen things like DeepSpeed coming out of Microsoft that have really just tried to capture and solve this problem of like distributed training of models at scale. And so a lot of frameworks exist, and I could see it being very possible that you take some of these ideas that are already there and then figure out how to scale them up. Maybe it has to be like another order of magnitude or something, but at least intuitively, I don't see there being a fundamental impossibility to that problem being solved. But I'd be curious if somebody who knows more than me has thoughts on this as well. While we're on the subject of interactions between the US and China, maybe digging ourselves out of the semiconductor rabbit hole a little bit, I'd love to get into some of your own experiences, I suppose. You mentioned spending time both in Silicon Valley and China and kind of looking at the interactions there. You had this wonderful book, The Trans-Pacific Experiment, that came out of it. I'd love to hear about First, your own experience in particular, looking at the interactions between Silicon Valley and China, and any stories from your book that particularly stuck out to you. Sure. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, that's the alleged reason that I do this work and that we care so much about this is because all this very big picture national security power dynamics. But to me, the the most fun part has always been the cultural smash ups that happen when you get these two ecosystems interacting or when you get um, people moving back and forth between these ecosystems. So 
earlier I talked about the, my entry point in was kind of meeting these Chinese engineers or entrepreneurs who might have come over here, gotten some education, worked at Google or worked at Facebook or something, and went back to China to found their own startups. So um, one of those companies and the, the first one that I ended up kind of profiling in my own work was a company named Mobvoi, Mobile Voice, founded by a guy named Li Jirfei, who grew up in China, PhD at Johns Hopkins worked in Google Translate for a few years and then went back to China to found his own company that was in many ways filling a hole that was left because Google was blocked in China. So it became a company that could, they offered a bunch of different products. They kind of in many ways chased each product that the US was releasing. So when when Google was releasing Google Glass, they were building their own mobile voice command operating system to work with Google Glass. When Apple released the Apple Watch, they became a smartwatch company. And so in many ways, you can see them kind of looking to the US or looking to that experience. But I always love just like the very... Yeah, the, the very ground level view of things. So I had talked to Drufei a few times. I went to visit the offices of Mobvoi in Beijing, and they were in the what they call the Silicon Valley of China. Zhongguansun is this uh, district in Beijing, and you know, just at a at a at a ground level, it it looks and feels so radically different than Silicon Valley. You know, the whole of I grew up partly in Palo Alto. That whole region is just just you know designed to make you feel at eased and light and airy and free and all that stuff. Whereas Zhongguansun is just a very like physical place. It's extremely dense. There's people riding scooters on motorcycle, like motorcycles on, uh, on, on sidewalks. There's people trying to sell you a discount or, uh, or counterfeit phones. There's food being cooked on the street, the whole thing. And so it, it already, you know, it's like, okay, this is a different environment in which to found your startup and in which to grow your company. You're just thinking about different things if that's your world, as opposed to just kind of like drifting into a beautiful office park. But I go upstairs. Um, it's a very like cramped uh, sort of low lit office full of the smells of like instant noodles and whatnot. And as I as I go in the door, there's there's two arrows on the floor and one of them says Silicon Valley and one of them says California. And uh, the California one is—it's like a glass arrow that's built into the floor, and that points towards all the all the engineers. And then the one that says Silicon Valley is pointing towards like two sort of pseudo comfy chairs. They look like very discount, you know, like massage chairs or something like that. I just kind of notice it. I go in. I talked to Jerfei for a while, and his co-founder Yuan Yuan, and he was talking about, you know, I really want to bring that kind of. This is the, like the most important things I learned at Google and in Silicon Valley were not uh, very concrete technical things, but it was more cultural things. You know, how do you create a culture of innovation? How do you uh, support your engineers? How do you how do you sort of build products that are looking one step ahead? And we talked about this for a while. I tried on their Google Glass features and stuff like that, and you know, kept talking about I want to bring the Google DNA into this place and. On the one hand, I, I, you know, I very much believe that that's the goal, and I believe that to a certain extent, you know, yeah, these these type of startups operate very different than the traditional state-owned enterprises that you know once dominated the Chinese economy. But they're still operating within a, a, a Chinese environment where the pressures are are very different. You know, VCs in China tend to be have very very little patience, very short timelines. They want to see money, they want to see profitability, they want to see you you know IPO as soon as possible. The people, and this is what year is this? This is 2014. So it's just as kind of startup culture is forming, but in many ways, people, the employees don't have this sort of investment in, in quote unquote mission. They're still trying to get, you know, their highest salary jump from company to company, which is, you know, the same anywhere. But it's it's watching it play out in a Chinese environment where all these decisions are just so sort of pressure filled in a lot of ways parent you know they need they know they need to earn money right away to support their parents because there's no social safety net in china to speak of and that type of like pressure cooker just drives everything it leads to what they you know they talk about the 996 work culture 9 a.m to 9 p.m six days a week it's just it's a it's a culture of grinding as opposed to necessarily a culture of free thinking and and let's just kind of like float along and, and open our minds and you know take low dose uh low dose hallucinogens and let that you know open up <laughs> open up the frontiers of what's possible it's more like no get in the office and just grind all day and so on the way out i saw these two um the two arrows again silicon valley pointing towards these kind of comfy chairs like super discount nap pods or whatever and the california arrow pointing towards all the desks and astrophair i was like so what's 
like, what are these two arrows about? Why, why, why are they called California and Silicon Valley? He says, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I wanted to, you know, imbue that Silicon Valley culture of working hard and then the, the California culture of kind of relaxing and being at ease. It's like, okay, but then why does the California arrow point towards all the work desks and the Silicon Valley arrow point towards the comfy chairs? And he goes, oh, yeah. They were installed by migrant workers and, and they didn't speak English, so they installed them backwards. And I was just like, it's such a good encapsulation of, of the way these like cultural forces are coming together. There's this desire to bring all these elements of Silicon Valley culture in and you want that to you know imbue into your company's culture, but you're still operating within a Chinese system where it's going to be built by by a bunch of migrant laborers. Uh, we're going to sort of make this thing actually work in some way, and yeah, they might just install your Silicon Valley, California culture setters backwards, and just stuff like that is. Uh, I, I always got such a kick out of that stuff. Yeah, that is quite the uh, <laughs> appropriate story for for a thing like this, and. It is interesting to just compare and contrast the two work cultures. My understanding is there's been quite the shift recently. Of course, we've seen the shifts in the United States just around remote work culture around the coronavirus. We've seen trends, things like quiet quitting. But then in China as well, there's been a little bit more pushback from younger people against the nine and six culture. And I've been kind of wondering how that impacts the way in which Maybe leaders like Jiffe or, or the country in general, in terms of party leaders, are looking at prospects for further growth and development in, in the tech space. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to say. Um, a lot of this pushback has emerged kind of either right before COVID or, or during COVID. So like the, the most prominent like way it was captured was this thing called Tangpin, which means to lie flat. And so it became a big social meme in China. Basically, it's almost like Tangpin, lie flat is like the opposite of lean in or it's the opposite of 996. It's just like, why are we grinding this hard? Why are we working this hard? I just want to basically like lay back and sort of check out of the of the modern rat race and culturally i'm like okay that's cool I, I like to see i like to see young chinese people taking a step back taking a little bit of the pressure off i i the government very much does not like this cultural meme they've kind of explicitly called it out as negative for the country and strangely it's coming at a time of where the government is in many ways saying hey we need to like batten down the hatches. We need to be ready for like long-term struggle. We need to build up our own semiconductor industry. We need to like achieve all these breakthroughs on our own to achieve self-sufficiency. At the same time that your, you know, your young workers who are often the backbone of the tech industry are kind of leaning a little bit like, why are we doing all this? Why am I, you know, killing myself over this, uh, over this job? So there's an inherent sort of tension there you know, how much is, is, is lie flat culture actually going to sort of permeate throughout the entire economy? It's hard to say, you know, same way, like quiet quitting. These are, they're, they're real phenomenons, but they gain a lot of like cultural currency, whereas you don't know if they're actually changing sort of the underpinning of the economy in some ways. So I think that's still very much to be seen, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting mix because I mean, so much of what I saw, especially when I visited and then moved to China in 2010 was like you had 30 years of economic growth that were built on changing policies and you know adding market elements but it's also just built on a lot of grinding i was just always amazed by the ability of middle-aged or young chinese people to just work seven days a week all year work 12 hour days driving a cab 364 days a year then take half a day off for chinese new year and then just go back and grind more and that's you know when that's been the whole like model of how your country has moved from very poor to middle income and then in a lot of ways that's that is translatable to the tech industry it is translatable to certain innovative enterprises i think we for a long time kind of looked down on that we we you know romanticized the free thinking think different just you know kind of sit and imagine and innovate type of thing where in reality a lot of like technological progress or innovation comes from grinding but it's also there is an element of needing a little bit more of that kind of blank canvas, uh, open-ended sort of exploratory research that doesn't necessarily need to drive towards financial returns. And so it'll be interesting to see if kind of culturally over the next 
you know, five years, decade, China creates a little bit more space for that. And whether there's a, yeah, whether there's a part of the youth culture that kind of latches onto that side of things. Yeah, I guess, interestingly, too, in the United States, with some of the macroeconomic conditions we've been seeing recently, it seems like a good number of tech leaders and VCs have been calling for a bit more of a batten down the hatches mentality. But at the same time, what you're pointing to, in terms of what people see as like a comparative advantage of the United States in terms of technology is certainly that open-ended research and things like that. But when we come to tough economic conditions, even the United States, you start to see some of that more fundamental research, things that are a bit more exploratory, even some of the you know top industry research labs. Like I think this happened to AT&T Bell Labs back in the day. Those just start to receive less funding, get shut down. And so I'm I'm curious how those trends are going to go forward in both countries. Maybe moving on from this subject, though, you've been writing a lot about tech standards and China's recent AI governance initiatives recently. Some of the really interesting things you've said about this are how we've come to a situation where it's like China is going to be conducting some of the world's largest regulatory experiments on things that European regulators have really only debated about. Can you maybe start by giving a rundown of some of the recent laws, initiatives that China's been pursuing recently and what you perceive their their impacts to be? Sure. Yeah, I think this is really one of the most interesting and sort of forward-looking parts of, of examining China's AI ecosystem these days is this emerging AI governance framework, or in some cases, just algorithm governance framework beyond just sort of AI ML. And so, you know, they they kind of like laid down the markers saying in all the way back to their 2017 national AI plan, they said, you know, by 2020, we want to have sort of an initial set of markers down in terms of how we want to govern AI. By 2025, we want to have a fairly complete set of, of rules and regulations in 2030. You know, we want to have the most advanced or complete set. And that, that really, we didn't see a ton of movement on that. Um, in the first few years, China was still very focused on the kind of go-go AI development stuff, while still, you know, they'd have some committees, both government committees and then also within the company saying, hey, let's come up with some principles. Let's think about how we're going to point this technology long term. But where it started to get quite real and what drew me into it was in late, uh, mid-late 2021, they rolled out a couple of different algorithm governance regulations and uh, they they got implemented in early 2022, January 1st, 2022. So the first one, and by far the most important one, is a regulation on recommendation algorithms. And here they they define this somewhat broadly in the sense that it's not just an AI-focused regulation, it is algorithm-focused. Now that creates its own sort of regulatory problems, but they've sort of narrowed it down to say, hey, we're basically dealing with like sort of news filtering algorithms, uh, personalization algorithms, algorithms for uh, dispatching workers or assigning work, and then I think one or two other categories. And without going into the specifics right away, I think high level, it, it, it's it's what you described there. It's China is sort of going to be running some very real-time experiments in terms of what can you actually demand of the algorithm engineers? What can you demand of the big platforms in terms of transparency uh, into the data sets that are used, into the type of models that are deployed, into explainability or interpretability. And the EU is doing a, a big thing in the EU AI Act, and the US is talking a lot of game. But in a lot of ways, we're going to, you know, we're going to see basically whether China can successfully lay down rules that are actually meaningful and actionable. When they say to platforms, you need to be able to, quote, you know, provide an explanation when a user's uh, interests are harmed. What do those explanations end up looking like when they, as they have, when they set up an algorithm registry system whereby people need to, or companies need to register their algorithms, they need to give a lot of information to the government in terms of what data is it trained on, what is sort of the, the fundamentals of the model, and fill out sort of algorithm safety assessments and stuff like that. How how actionable and how meaningful are those things? And I think that's, we, we have a tendency to basically discount what comes out of China in terms of technology regulation, because we just sort of lump it all into the big bucket of Chinese government, you know, surveillance, control of companies, 
there's not really anything for us to learn from that because all they want to do is, you know, exploit their their companies and their population for the government's own ends. But when it gets down to these very sort of technical brass tacks questions of can we can we exert meaningful control over the way that algorithms are deployed or can we gain meaningful information about them from stuff like data sets and model types? China is effectively going to be running these experiments first. And if we can look at them, we can learn a lot. We don't want to extract or like learn from sort of the deep values that underlie a lot of the Chinese government's relationship or uses of technology. But I really think there's a lot to learn in terms of the brass tacks. And even if we're not learning, you know, just the way that China governs this technology is going to filter out into all kinds of supply chains, into how its own markets interact with our markets, its commodity markets interact with global commodity markets, its military interacts with other militaries around the world. And so I think it's a really important area to watch. Yeah. And I think one really key thing that you just pointed out is it's very easy to look at China and think this is an authoritarian government. They want to use these technologies for surveillance. And one might look at, for example, some of the the ethical standards that have been put out and think, well, China, you know, they're like, this country wants to play a pretty big role in terms of the international conversation on AI ethics, and then at the same time, does things that many people in the Western world would be morally objectionable with that technology. And so there is this sense in which I'm sure a lot of people are just trying to square those two things together and understand what's going on there. I do think to what you said, regardless of the top level motivations, there's a lot we can learn from some of the lower level attempts at regulation. But for people who who are trying to square those two thoughts in their heads a little bit, I'm curious how how you come at the issue. Yeah, I think maybe it's just from spending a long time living in China. I'm just very used to the idea that like there can be some two things that appear to be directly in conflict, and I think Americans people raised in like a Western tradition, we're like, well, you have to solve that fundamental conflict. We need to like come to some synthesis or understanding whereby these things make sense. In China, they tend to just be like, "Eh, let's just, you know, see if it works and just kind of like push through and they don't need. So when I hear, okay, yeah, the, the government has these really does these really horrific things with AI in terms of surveilling, imprisoning its Uyghur population in Xinjiang, how, if they're doing that with the technology, how can we take seriously what they say about regulating company uses of the technology? And to me, it's like, well, it's very possible. They, they, have a, they have a clear sort of mental split in their mind. They're like, we are the government. We can do what we want with this technology, broadly speaking, but we want to constrain our companies. We want to maintain control over the way our companies use and deploy the technology. And to them, these things do not appear to be in conflict in a meaningful way, or they're just like, yeah, you know, maybe it's sort of at a high level, theoretical level, it's weird for us to simultaneously say we want to preserve user privacy when it's related to companies, while objectively violating user privacy as a government. But they're just kind of like not bothered by that tension in a lot of ways. And so I, it's, it's just, I, I have some more, you know, you just kind of like split the brain a little bit and be like, yes, as a governance system as, or as a political system, they are going to use this technology for every one of the worst use cases you can imagine. And yet they still have a real interest in doing smart regulation of it as it relates to their companies or as it relates to their labs. And so it's, yeah, I don't know, just kind of living with that like cognitive dissonance. Yeah, that that really is an interesting dissonance to maintain. But I do wonder how much just looking at the way in which there might be just a fundamentally different conception in China about the role of the government versus individual companies and, and the life of a daily citizen. Maybe there's something kind of deeper there that makes us a little bit less dissonant. But at the same time, I suppose, for many of us, looking at this from America, from the West, we probably just have to allow that that discomfort to exist in our heads. And it, it does seem, as you've been saying, that regardless of that dissonance, looking at these lower level aspects of the experiments, whether meaningful regulation can occur, is going to be valuable for the US in 
some of the ways in which the U.S. wants to implement these regulations, right? You've noted that political dysfunction and social division and economic and social polarization chip away at the perception of America as like a stable and prosperous country. And we are going to need smarter tech policy to hone in on and kind of address platforms' roles in the polarization and inequality we're seeing. And that's very strategically important for the country. So regardless of of how they're using it, I suppose, as you said, looking at what actually comes out of this at the end of the day is going to be very important for American and European regulators. Yeah. And I mean, I think in America, we're, we're almost we're in a, an especially good position that we can simultaneously watch what China is doing and what the EU is doing. And they're taking very different approaches, not just in terms of like the underlying values or you know the, the role of government in citizens' lives. They're taking very like practically different approaches. The EU is taking a very what they call a horizontal approach, one regulation called the AI Act that is supposed to effectively like be the umbrella regulation at which all all applications of AI fall under to a certain extent. And China is taking what I think of as a more vertical approach in that they're not saying we're going to pass the one Chinese AI Act. They're saying, first, let's pass these regulations on recommendation algorithms. Then let's pass these regulations on deep fakes. Then, you know, it's unclear what they're going to do next, but you could imagine one that might be on medical AI or, or autonomous vehicles or something like that. And so even watching that kind of difference in approach, each, you know, a horizontal approach has some value and a more vertical approach of tackling specific sort of applications or specific sort of tasks, like recommendation as a task that AI accomplishes. I think, yeah, they both have their pros and cons. And I think it's going to be cool to watch those two contrasting experiments play out and then figure out which one sort of fits better in terms of how the U.S. wants to tackle this. Yeah, I'll I'll be very interested to watch how this plays out in the future. I think this might be a good point to get to some closing thoughts. And as somebody who's coming from more of the journalism and analysis side, I'm curious if you've developed any perspectives about how technologists should understand the geopolitical developments that pertain to their area, so technology and AI, for instance, just in terms of how we build technology and like the principles we should consider as we are thinking about perhaps our individual jobs, but then also the companies we're working in. I'm curious if you if you have any perspectives on that set of things. Yeah, you know, I think it's like a way overdone cliche to just say, oh, technologists need to think more about the social impacts of their work. It's not to say that that's wrong, but it's just it's unclear exactly what that means from there. I guess maybe we're the the first step to me always seems like a real just shift in like perspective in terms of like the units that we're talking about. It's one of the things that usually happens when I'm explaining some like geopolitical thing to someone who's a, a technologist. They're just, you know, I'll say, okay, well, you know, China has 38% of the top researchers in sort of this neural networks, you know, this application here, the U.S. has this percentage and the U.S. wants to like retain these people. They want them to work at American institutions. I just don't think of it that way. I just don't think like they are a researcher. They are part of a global community. They happen to be headquartered in China. They happen to be headquartered in Canada. Like we're just not thinking in terms of like the boundaries of nation states or relative power in that way. Theirs is a very like legitimate and, and important perspective. And so when they're kind of transitioning over to thinking in terms of political analysis, you, it's almost like you really have to think of how different the units of analysis are. And maybe one thing that could be helpful is like, you don't have to fully embrace the way that this other side looks at the world, but it's worth trying to put yourself in those shoes for a little bit, being able to sort of speak in those terms for a little bit, because each of these lenses has has value. I, a lot of times when I'm talking to policy people and trying to explain to them, hey, you know, this development's happening, this sort of new trend in the machine learning community, it's happening here. Some of those people are, are folks who came over from China contributing to the U.S. ecosystem, vice versa. And they're just like, I don't understand, like, why don't these people understand that, like, this is about power and, and, and military and we need to like lock down this technology and we need to kind of 
block these research flows or block these information flows. And then I have to say then like, you know, that's just not the model that this community is operating on. They don't see themselves that way. That's not the way information flows between the two worlds. And so it's like each side needs to on some level make like a fundamental, not a fundamental permanent switch, but just an ability to think and speak in the other side sort of terminology and think in those units. And ideally, you can kind of inhabit both or you can kind of alternate between both. You can see the value in both perspectives. And then you can find sort of the creative points at which knowledge from one side can be leveraged for the other. Knowledge from the technical community can be leveraged to make better policy. Knowledge from the policy world can be leveraged to slightly tweak or, or, or change the way the technology is developed or who it's partnered with. But yeah, it's like you don't have to agree with the other community. You don't have to wholesale adopt their worldview, but you should be able to just kind of like move between these languages and move between these perspectives um, and see the value in both. Yeah, I think that's a really good final takeaway for our listeners. Well, Matt, I do want to thank you for taking all the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate your work and I can't recommend it to our listeners and readers enough. I'll be making sure to post a lot of the links to your pieces that I referenced for this conversation today. But again, thank you so much for all the work you do and for chatting with me today. Thanks so much, Daniel. Really, really enjoyed it. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.